is Bloomberg Surveillance. Monetary policy cannot, by stimulating, create permanent jobs, and it can't lift long-run potential growth. The central thing holding us back throughout this recovery has been lack of demographic growth, and that's not changing anytime soon. We're creating a boatload of jobs. I mean, we're creating, on average, over 200,000 jobs per month, and that's a lot more than we need to absorb the growth in the working age population. Bloomberg Surveillance, your link to the world of economics, finance, and investment on Bloomberg Radio. Good morning, everyone. Bloomberg Surveillance, Michael McKee and Tom Keen. It's a Wednesday. That important ECB meeting tomorrow, we will brief you on economics, finance, and investment in this hour. Uh, the Forex Brief this morning brought to you by Interactive Brokers, winner of FX Week's 2015 award for the best retail Forex trading platform. Visit IB at IBKR.com slash Forex. Yen was stronger. Now it's a churn. 112.76. Euro 109.51. Just a churn to the market. Sterling was a 142 earlier. Gives back a little one. Well, there it is. 142.00 on pound sterling and dollar showing a little bit of strength, but a churn all in all to the foreign exchange uh, market. Futures down, futures up, futures down, which means the only way to save us towards excitement is David Wilson who joins us here on the equity market. Pfizer is doing something. I couldn't figure it out. They're buying back $5 billion of stock. Didn't they already announce that? Right, but this is a matter of actually doing it. It's one thing to announce it, and it's another thing to make it happen. And they're doing it through what's called an accelerated repurchase agreement with Goldman Sachs. The dollar amount's equivalent to about a 2.2% stake, and Pfizer's shares are up 1.5% in early So trade. even with the pre-announcement, when they finally announce it, I mean, a legit blue-chip company... It moves the market. Well, it certainly is uh, in early trading today. <clears throat> then you have Valiant Pharmaceuticals, which is up 3.5%. The embattled drug maker added, added the vice chairman of Bill Ackman's Pershing Square Capital to its board, I'm along shocked. with two other independent directors. Yeah, I mean, you can say that because Pershing Square is Valiant's third largest shareholder with a 6.3% stake. Chipotle Mexican Grill down 3%. The restaurant chain temporarily closed a store near Boston after four employees got sick. The shutdown in Billerica, Massachusetts, was the latest in a series of food safety issues that began in November. Darden restaurants up 2.5%. The owner of Olive Garden and other chains reported preliminary earnings for the fiscal third quarter that beat analyst average estimate in the Bloomberg survey. Some analyst calls of note. Ross stores down 1.5%. The off-price retailer was lowered to neutral at Goldman Sachs and take off, taken off a list of the firm's top picks. All this happening after Ross stores rose 28% from a low set in November. Three more. Hat trick. Frontier Communications down 4.5%. The phone company lowered to sell from neutral at Citigroup. And a couple of Internet companies down after being cut to sell from neutral at UBS. Groupon is one of them, down 5%. The other is the consumer review website Yelp, which is down 5.5%. Do you, do you use Yelp? I do, actually. Do you? Yeah. Mike, do you use Yelp? I do. I don't get it. Well, I'm trying. Well, it, it's pretty simple. You just say, I want to find a place that sells a microphone. And you just put in microphones. It'll tell you what the store is. I use it for restaurants. In other yeah. words, if I'm in a place and I don't know what's going on, you look up what's around and figure okay. out, where do I want to eat? Review Yelp again. What did they do? Consumer review website. You can put it that way. 
Okay. And say down five and a half percent. Down to five and a half percent. David Wilson, thank you uh, so much. He's a former chairman of the Securities and Exchange Commission. We'll get to that in a moment. Do Yelp, and you just type in Arthur Levin, and you see that he's sitting right next to you. Yeah, you can. But this time of year, he's <laughs> getting ready to go bass fishing out in New York Harbor. Right. It's 75 degrees today. It's 75 degrees tomorrow. The water temperature is 42.6 degrees in New York Harbor. You can't, just because it's warm out, you don't go bass fishing. They haven't, they're not biting yet, right? No, that's right. They're, they're rather we're, deep. We're not many weeks away, though. But with but, this kind of weather, the bass yeah. will be coming around the Verrazano. Did you buy bridge. a new boat this year? Is no, it like, did no, you buy no. something five feet longer? No, 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 no. Same boat. Same okay. small boat, you, all full disclosure. What we love, <laughs> what <laughs> we love, that's great. Well, full disclosure, Arthur Levitt brought along a fabulous note today. Um, of a letter from the second chairman of the SEC just before your tenure, 1936, from Mr. Landis. Describe this original letter that he wrote two years after the advent. He was writing to uh, the head of one of the brokerage associations in response to a letter that he got from them, telling them all the things the SEC was going to do, all the issues they were going to pursue, disclosure issues, market issues, setting up an organization to represent the markets. And it was fascinating because almost every one of those issues are still with us today. Uh, They talked about qualified brokers, the segregation of securities, Registration, prospectuses. Quote, beating, beating the, gun. the gun. What is beating the gun? Beating the gun means trading, uh, front running. It means front, front running. running. Yeah, that's effect. great. I haven't did, heard did they, beating you, the gun. Did you ever see them use a gun on the floor of the American New York <laughs> no, Stock No, no, I never heard of it before, but <laughs> isn't that wonderful? I think we should start talking once more about beating the gun. The idea here, and it does fold into our politics, is beating the system. And the reason these organized markets exist is so people know they get a fair trade. Does the little guy get a fair trade? I've had so many people in the last couple of weeks, Arthur, ask me about the hedge funds and the people moving the markets, oil or whatever, iron ore. It's tough. The little guy really should be using uh, low expense ratio mutual funds. The little guy doesn't have access to the kind of information that the institutions do, and the little guy knows that. Nevertheless, the little guy trades at a fraction of the cost that his great-grandfather traded at, and I think the little guy is more fairly represented than ever before. But the message of the past, of the Landis uh, observations, is that These are never-ending problems. The issue of transparency, the issue of disclosure, is just as relevant today as it was when Landis wrote that letter. It's a wonderful piece of Mm -hmm. memorabilia. Mr. Landis uh, may not be surprised by the length of time it's taking the agency to complete market stability rules. SEC Chair Mary Jo White now says... Uh, won't get done by the time she steps down next January. Should we be surprised, or is this just what you expect? In, uh, the I'm not at all surprised. I think that she's been unfairly criticized for not having accomplished more of her mandated agenda, but uh, 
what Congress did was dump everything on the commission and didn't fund the commission to do everything. I think that Mary Jo has done a heroic job, has established an environment of dignity, responsibility, and care for the investor that I think is awfully important, and she's fought back an alien Congress, particularly the financial services so-called oversight committee, uh, and I think she's mm-hmm. been a wonderful chair. The shock and awe, which I had, uh, and I consider myself an amateur in this, of Mr. Sanders doing better than good in Michigan, is this about, with, with your decades of service to the Democratic Party and, and your father's heritage, I might point out as well, is this about Mr. Sanders better than good, or is Mrs. Clinton losing the pixie dust of mainstream Democrats. In an interesting way, the Sanders phenomena is a parallel of the Trump phenomena. The American voter doesn't want business as usual. If that means Trump, so be it. If it means Sanders, we'll go with it. We don't want same old, same old, same old. Can Mrs. Clinton adapt to that? In a sense, in a sense, but it's something she will have to live with in a campaign against an ant- the ultimate anti-establishment figure. Won't be easy. It isn't a lock. Arthur Levitt, thank you so much. Arthur Levitt is the former chairman of the Securities and Exchange Commission, and we look forward. And I don't. When do the bass start? The bass will start probably the first week in April. There we are, first week of April. Look the forward to the boat, surveillance. Both big enough Fish for report. Tom and I to get on there with you and right. you know, broadcast live. No, we do we it, it's a tradition. We do an hour. Arthur program. Levitt and Gad about Gaddis. We get them together and you you know, know. get it done. The Fish Report, April. <laughs> we could sell first that. Week. The Bloomberg Fish Report brought to you by. Yeah. Um, and you can do it. You can do the Fish Report. <laughs> yeah, I'd be very I good. Do you realize I get seasick? Just if the martini swirls a little bit, I get, I get in, I'm wondering, Michael Barr, do you get instantly seasick? You know what? I hate to admit it, yes. I get instantly, like, boom, yeah. switch goes off. Well, I fish, so I'm not. Yeah, I, I'm absolutely I'm useless. Michael Barr and I will be, uh, uh, fishing at the, uh, and we'll, whatever that waterside bar is on East River. We'll be, <laughs> get back to the we'll dock right and you will, have, you will have the martinis ready for us. We will be there. Future's up nine. Down future's up 78. Ten-year yield 1.88%. Um, a churn <laughs> to the market, but as Michael McKee mentioned, the headline is oil as a bid today. 37.29 West Texas Intermediate, up a good 80 cents. Brent, $40.50 a barrel, up 83 cents this morning. Time now to check in with Michael Barr for the latest news headlines. Mike. Mike, Tom, thank you very much. Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders will hold their eighth debate tonight in Florida. Last night, Clinton won the Mississippi Democratic primary, but Sanders scored a narrow upset win in Michigan. Clinton has more than half of the delegates she needs to win the Democratic presidential nomination. Republican frontrunner Donald Trump insists there's tremendous positive energy in the party. Trump told NBC's Today, some people have never voted before. And they're voting for Trump. He stretched his lead over his Republican rivals after wins in Michigan, Mississippi, and Hawaii. Ted Cruz won the Idaho primary. Two people have drowned in Oklahoma and Texas as a large storm system moves over sections of the south today. 
A flash flood warning is in effect for parts of eastern Texas, southern Arkansas, and northern Louisiana. Global News, 24 hours a day, powered by our 2,400 journalists and more than 150 news bureaus from around the world. I'm Michael Barr. Mike, Tom. Michael, thanks so much. Again, tomorrow, our exclusive coverage, the ECB, with the headlines from the Bloomberg Professional Service. We'll have that for you with the important press conference at 8.30. It's Bloomberg Surveillance. Market Driver is brought to you by your Mercedes-Benz Tri-State dealer. No matter what the weather, Mercedes-Benz Formatic all-wheel drive brings peace of mind and driving confidence. Visit your Mercedes-Benz Tri-State dealer for a test drive today. Global Business News, 24 hours a day at Bloomberg.com, the Radio Plus mobile app, and on your radio. This is a Bloomberg Business Flash. And I'm Karen Moscow. This update's brought to you by Interactive Brokers and CME Group. If you're looking for a global futures contract at low trading costs, look no further. Interactive Brokers is the industry leader. Learn more at interactivebrokers.com slash CME Group. U.S. stock index futures, they're higher, signaling more gains for equities heading into the eighth year of a bull run as investors await cues from central banks. We check the markets every 15 minutes throughout the trading day on Bloomberg. S&P E-mini futures up about eight points. Dow E-mini futures up 69. NASDAQ E-mini futures up 15. The DAX in Germany is up 1.2%. 10-year Treasury down 13.30 seconds. The yield 1.87%. Yield on the two-year 0.89%. NYMEX crude oil up 2% or 73 cents to 37.23 a barrel. COMEX gold is down 1.2% or $15.50 to 12.47.30 an ounce. The euro, $1.0950. The N112.81. And that's a Bloomberg Business Flash. Tom and Mike. Kai Bosco, thank you very much. Well, as Tom mentioned, the ECB meets tomorrow. Mario Draghi, um, a range of options. You heard Lena Komaleva saying a few moments ago that she thinks helicopter money may be the answer. Ben Emmons uh, from Leader Capital is going to have to trade whatever Mr. Draghi does. So let's bring him in and get the market's view of what's likely to happen and what the impact is going to be. Uh, Ben, what do you think uh, Mario Draghi does, uh, and would it be the same thing as something that will have an impact on the markets and uh, and help out the eurozone? Right. Good morning, Mike and Tom. Thanks, thanks again for having me. Um, well, I think if you look back at the history of what the ECB has done so far, then what, there's there's two things to distinguish there. Right. One, the ECB is very good at, at signaling what the, what it's going to do next, and markets are anticipating. And I did a little little quick study on that and saw like, yeah. The market rallies ahead of this potential announcement, but then the announcement itself is welcomed relatively muted. And you can see this you know, in interest rates and, and, and stock prices and currency, et cetera, if you look at, at the history changes that I, the note I sent you shows that, shows that table. Um, so I think tomorrow you have again this sort of response where largely market expectations are set at that QE will expand and that they will introduce a negative deposit rate, and then they will look at the details of maybe there's, there's tweaks here and there that may lead to, to surprise. But I think the background here is, Mike, is that Draghi has to always get some form of compromise among his ECB members for this next policy action. And that means that he is really good at signaling you know, a, a potential new action coming. And then as the market responds to that, he can then create this sort of environment, say, hey, look, it works, so therefore let's create this, you know, have a compromise about what we're going to do because there's going to be resistance by some ECB members of having much more QE and others who would argue for, for, for less QE, et cetera. Right? So 
there's, there's that element as well. So I think you, you're having a tomorrow in effect where interest rates are probably going to be relatively muted. Right. I think what I want to watch tomorrow really is how credit markets are going to respond. Exactly. To the, to the, to the, uh, actually, yeah. You've got a nice workout on that. But what, what is so important to me, Ben Emmons, is if I look at the German two-year, it's essentially a global proxy of negative rates. It's a vector and it's basically in one direction. Do you just presume with whatever the strategy is, whatever the orthodox, unorthodox soup that they do, that the German two-year will drive to a new negative yield below negative 0.60%? Yeah, I would agree with you, Tom. That's, that's right, because, one, that's driven by that deposit rate, and, and then future expectations of more cuts in the deposit rate that's, that's in that two-year yield. And, and indeed, you could have a more extreme level of, of this two-year yield. Because if you look at the history so far of what, what actually has had the major impact from, from the ECB's programs has been on that two-year yield in Germany. Right? That one has gone down really dramatically, whereas the euro has been okay. changed. Right? That's the proxy, the German right. two-year yield. To review, folks, it's, it's been negative. Let me go back and give you roughly the date where it flipped negative, it flipped negative, about almost positive. Call it November of 2014 within a quick look. What does Mr. Draghi want the German two-year to do? Or does he not care? Because that's what I'm hearing in a lot of interviews. I think he, he cares more about the broader impact of that program. If I read back his speech from, from April 2014 that he had in, in Amsterdam, uh, uh, where he laid out the framework he basically laid out three points. He said, we're going to use forward guidance, then we're going to use credit easing with, with LTROs, and then we're going to use a broad-based asset purchase program to get our inflation more stable near 2%. That's kind of his framework thinking. Now, he's addressed all three components. So I think he's not so, so concerned about the really extreme negative yield in the two-year German government bond, rather that this, this impact of his program along those three lines that he laid out in that speech. I think, though, that... Yes, he is concerned probably, and other ECB members too, about the constraints that the banking system is again facing, especially what we went through in, in January. So I, I would think that they would, you know, can always add more liquidity to the system. But moreover, if they want to look more specifically at, at the aspect of what happened in January, uh, we want to address that because they could drill the other aspects of our program, right? So, yeah, he, he will care about that negative rate. But he really cares about it in a broader context. If that negative rate leads to 2% inflation and broad-based lending, then, then it's fine by him. And that's ultimately still their objective. Right? But there aren't any signs that's happening right now. True. And, and I think that's, that's indeed what they would try. I, what I think they will try to address is that, that they have seen like, well, we had some success with, with a weaker currency and lower rates, but we haven't had much success with, with credit extension for that matter. Uh, the, the, for example, when they introduced what they call targeted LTROs, which is a, is a LTRO program that where banks can refinance collateral that's that's, that's lent to non-financial corporations, uh, that they may look to expand that because that facility is only 18 billion outstanding, is very small, and never had any kind of success. They may look at alternatives to this too. That yeah, credit spreads are still relatively wide in Europe, including bank spreads. That they may make tweaks there. They can purchase corporate bonds. They can buy financial debt. They could do that or signal thereof, right? And I think, again, Draghi's really good about that, but signaling something like that coming coming down the pike to generate the effect and then get the compromise to actually implement a program like uh, 
like that. So I think all those things are, are in the works. I'm actually for tomorrow indeed really focused on how credit markets will respond to, to, to Draghi as he announces this new program, because the QE program, I think, is largely priced. Okay. Ben Emmons, thank you so much, Leader Capital. As we brief you towards tomorrow and the Draghi press conference, we'll have that all the details in the 8 o'clock hour. Tomorrow, futures up 7 from New York, Bloomberg Surveillance. Counting you down to the open bell, brought to you by the Jeep Grand Cherokee, the most awarded SUV ever. The Grand Cherokee continues to raise the bar with its luxurious interior and legendary 4x4 capability. Drive one at your local Jeep dealer today. Broadcasting live to New York, Bloomberg 1130, to Washington, D.C., Bloomberg 991, to Boston, Bloomberg 1200, to San Francisco, Bloomberg 960, to the country, Sirius XM Channel 119, and around the globe, the Bloomberg Radio Plus app and Bloomberg.com. This is Bloomberg Surveillance. Good morning. I'm Karen Moscow, along with Tom Keen and Michael McKee, and that is the sound of the opening bell. It's brought to you by SEI. Imagine when asset management servicing is unconstrained by infrastructure. See how SEI's global operating platform can be your catalyst for business expansion at SEIC.com slash imagine. Stocks higher at the open. The S&P 500 up three-tenths percent or six points to 1985. Dow Jones Industrial Average up three-tenths percent or 48 points to 17,018. The Nasdaq up Four tenths percent or 18 points to 46.67. Ten-year Treasury down 13.30 seconds. The yield 1.87 percent. Yield on the two-year 0.89 percent. NYMEX crude oil is up two percent or 73 cents to 37.22 a barrel. COMEX gold down 1.3 percent or 16 dollars 10 cents to 12.46.70 an ounce. The euro a dollar 0.948. The yen 112.83. Tom and Mike. Karen, thanks so much. And Karen, like myself. We usually don't quote net gas, which is important because it is cratered with a four-day rebound here recently. But I rarely use the word cratered, and yet it works for net gas. I begged our crack team, Mike, what's our staff up to, like 80 people, 83 Maybe eighty-four. 80, but yeah, it depends. Right. You know, some of them, some of them are some of them were 80, out voting 80, in the primary. They're voting. Yes, they're they're, they're they're old enough to vote. Yeah. Um, anyways, our crack team finally cra- uh, tracked them down. Stephen Shark joins us from the Shark Report. All right now, Stephen, wonderful to have you on. Why is oil up in Nat Gas South? Uh, Nat Gas is uh, down because, or actually, it's up. It's we're essentially at a technical turning point, guys. It is. So cheap at this point. I got down to about a dollar sixty, which is what about ten dollars barrel oil equivalent. Uh, the reason for the bearish uh, bearishness in gas, aside from the uh, little pop that we're getting now, is the fact that the U.S. industrial economy has been, continues to be, will be for the foreseeable future in a steep recession. Keep in mind, I'm saying the industrial sector of the economy, hence why we've gotten the pullback. So with natural gas, your only other driver outside of commercial and industrial demand, which is at a post-Great Recession low, by the way, is the weather. And, of course, now we're in the shoulder months. We don't have gas furnace demand. We don't have air conditioning demand. So we don't have power demand on the residential side. So hence why we've had such a precipitous drop. But the funny thing about natural gas is it's the ultimate or the consummate contrarian play. So we were weak throughout the winter. 
even if this was a cold winter, on average, we see weakness in gas prices during the winter. And then you tend to see a counter-cyclical rebound in natural gas once we get into the shoulder months. So perhaps that's what we're seeing right now, a technical bounce, which could also come into being a contrarian trade over the next month, two months. Now, with regard to oil, this is the market that's not trading on fundamentals. We've had a significant pop in oil prices over the last two weeks, but I'm going to underscore this. This is nothing but a major short squeeze rally. I'll give you a for instance. As of a week ago, according to the CFTC, both bullish speculators and bearish speculators liquidated some of their positions going into two Fridays ago. The difference is when the bulls liquidated their position, they sold one contract. When the bears liquidated the position, they bought back 82 contracts. So when you sell one contract and you buy 82 contracts, guess what happens to price? And hence, we are now into this significant short squeeze. How long does it last? Uh, it's a great question, Mike. Uh, it could. Now, what's happened here is this rally is driven solely by a liquidation by the bears. Now, what we've seen now over the past week is open interest beginning to rise. So if the rally to this point was driven by a bearish speculation, if open interest is indeed rising, that could be a significant sign that money, bullish money, is coming into the market. So this could prolong the rebound. So uh, how long? No one's going to be able to tell you that. Uh, but certainly we're going through the sh we're going through the uh, uh, turnaround season, the maintenance season. So we're buying a lot fewer barrels, physical buyers, because the refineries are shutting down units for maintenance to get ready for the summer. So this is more or less a spec-driven rally. So this could happen until when? until the end of the turnaround season when we bring the physical buyers back into the market and some fundamentals are, again, injected into this market. So you know, roll of the dice, this could last a couple of more months, could last mm -hmm. just another day. It could be with yesterday's sell-off. It could have already run its course. No one, unfortunately, right. can tell you that. Right and, now. and to be clear, you're not long oil, because this has been a raging debate. Uh, Dan Suzuki with Francisco Blanche at Maryland suggests – Prices to 50, and they've got fundamental enthusiasm. Uh, Jeff DeGraff, working technically, was ruthless today, looking for a retest of lows and even into the teens. Yeah, I, I cannot make, guys, I cannot make the fundamental case. I, I understand uh, there is the, the inclination. We're looking at um, certainly prices are so cheap. But just because prices are cheap doesn't mean that's not a reason to buy. They're, they're cheap for a really good reason. And that really good reason is we are still producing a lot of oil, not only here in North America, but what seems to be have driven some of this speculative rally is this idiotic notion that somehow OPEC is going to come to some sort of agreement on a production freeze. I'll just point you to yesterday's ballistic missile test by Iran. There is no way the Sunni side of OPEC and the Shia side of OPEC are going to come to an agreement on production anytime in the foreseeable future. So if you are buying oil on the assumption OPEC is going to freeze production, good luck with that because that is not happening. But so far, we've put a floor under oil because people are thinking it, it might. What, what changes, what, what, do, uh, what happens to get people to believe that you're correct? 
Um, well, at this point, we've already got 517 million barrels of oil in commercial stocks sitting there. That is at the highest level since uh, Babe Ruth was hitting home runs up there in the Bronx. Uh, at this point, it's just going to be a, 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 a wait-and-see game. We have to let this run its course, uh, certainly once we get into the demand season, Mike. So uh, perhaps we're going to have to wait until either the beginning of the summer or the end of the summer after we get through the peak oil demand season, gasoline season, that is, in July and August, then perhaps, because if, if you juxtapose today's price path in oil with last year's price path in oil, they're, they're going in lockstep uh, fashion. So in January last mm-hmm. year, oil bottomed at about $40, rallied to $60 in May, then right. we went into the summer demand season, and by the end of the summer demand season, oil was at $40 a barrel. And then, of course, at the beginning of this year, it dropped down to basically $25 a barrel. So I could see that happening again. So this rally certainly could continue into the summer, but certainly I'm not expecting a significant pullback yeah. in production, enough, enough to compensate for soft demand, and hence why I wouldn't be surprised if this current right. lockstep again <clears throat> follows last year's pattern. Very, very, very quickly here. When we say we're up to our eyeballs in oil, are we up to our eyeballs in natural gas? Uh, absolutely, and that's the bigger issue here because production is showing no signs of any sort of significant cutback. So, again, as I said, your only two drivers for natural gas essentially are commercial and industrial demand, which is in recession, and then the weather. Now, the difference is here that with natural gas, all it is going to take to get natural gas back to $3 a decatherm from where it is today at about $1.70 a decatherm, all it's going to take, guys, is a really, really hot summer. So if you get a sweltering summer in Boston, it's got to be in the northern latitudes also because it's always hot in the south. So Boston, New York, okay. Chicago have to swelter. If that happens, you'll see a significant uh, bounce in natural gas okay. by the end of the summer. Stephen Shark, we will return. Stephen Shark on oil, one of the great debates of this moment. The market up 45 points. Time now to bring in Michael Barr for the latest news headlines. Michael. Hi, Tom. Thank you very much. Vice President Joe Biden says we will act if Iran breaks the nuclear deal. Biden is in Jerusalem today for meetings with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. It comes after Iran's news agency says the country fired two ballistic missiles with the phrase Israel must be wiped out written in Hebrew on them. Biden says U.S.-Israel relations remain strong. It doesn't mean we don't disagree, but you uh, you never need to doubt that the United States of America has Israel's back. And we know Israel has our back as well, I might add. It's not a one-way street. Biden will meet later today with Palestinian President Mahmoud Abbas. Democrats Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders will debate again tonight. Clinton won the Mississippi primary yesterday, while Sanders narrowly scored an upset win in Michigan. Donald Trump won Republican contests in Michigan, Mississippi, and Hawaii. Ted Cruz won Idaho. He was the Beatles' other George. Beatles manager George Martin has died. Martin produced some of the most influential Beatles albums. Including Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, George Martin was 90. Global News, 24 hours a day, powered by our 2,400 journalists and more than 150 news bureaus from around the world. I'm Mike LeBar. Mike, Tom? Extraordinary individual. He was. It is, it is just album after album of original 
I don't think you'll ever see that again. Have you? Yeah, I, I don't think so. Absolutely extraordinary. Sir George Martin. This is Bloomberg Surveillance. We're with Steve Shark. Tom noted the weather. It's going to be in the 60s all through next week in New York. Stephen Short next on what the temperatures mean for the price of energy. Global business news 24 hours a day at Bloomberg.com, the Radio Plus mobile app, and on your radio. This is a Bloomberg Business Flash. And I'm Karen Moscow. This update is brought to you by National Realty. 30% returns on cash and rented real estate. Find them at NRIA.net. U.S. stocks higher, headed toward an eighth year of a bull run, led by a rebound in energy shares. Amid speculation, central banks will continue to provide stimulus to bolster sluggish global growth. We check the markets every 15 minutes throughout the trading day on Bloomberg. S&P 500 up three-tenths percent or six points in 1985. Dow Jones Industrial Average up four-tenths percent or 62 points to 17,026. The Nasdaq is little changed, up three points to 46.51. Ten-year Treasury down 10.30 seconds, the yield one point. 0.86%. The yield on the two-year, 0.89%. NYMEX crude oil up 1.6% or 57 cents to 37.07 a barrel. COMEX gold down 1.4% or $17.30 to 12.45.80 an ounce. The euro, $1.0951. The yen, 112.89. Valiant Pharmaceuticals International will add three new board members, including a representative from one of the drug makers' biggest investors, and expand the panel to 14 directors from 12. Also, BMW predicting only a slight increase in deliveries, taking a cautious approach for a year when it risks losing its lead in the luxury car market to Mercedes-Benz. That's a Bloomberg Business Flash. Tom and Mike. Karen Mosca, thank you very much. Stephen Shork of the Shork Report is with us. We're talking about the price of energy. Uh, We talked a little bit about natural gas and how uh, it was a mild winter. didn't help uh, the price of natural gas. Uh, To what extent, Stephen, is oil correlated with the weather? Uh, it's correlated to, to the sense from the point of, of course, distillate fuels and the products, so, so gasoline and so forth. So, for instance, uh, as you pointed out, we had a very mild uh, summer, excuse me, winter. So that meant in the northern latitudes, you didn't have snow, you didn't have ice, so you didn't have the normal weather demand destruction. So, again, the weather is going to play a difference, uh, certainly in the winter, depending on the road conditions. So the road conditions, for the most part, were very favorable to strong gasoline demand. And, indeed, this is, uh, this is exactly uh, what we saw. And so that's also going to impact at this point right now in the Midwest because we're starting to enter the planting season. So you're going to see an outsized gain in demand for distillate fuels. So certainly if we get a rainy a rainy spring or a rainy fall, so forth, and it kind of delays the planting or the harvesting, uh, if you're in the fall, that is, that's certainly going to impact your demand uh, patterns. And then, of course, we get into the summer. So from an oil standpoint, it, it all depends uh, uh Certainly at, at points of the year, at some points, dislip deals are going to lead the market, which is what we're going to start to see in the Midwest. And at other points, gasoline is going to drive the market, typically around the holiday season, of course, and then once we get into the vacation season in the summer. Well, there you go. Vacation season is coming up. What's the price of gasoline going to be for uh, people who are going to get in the cars? Oh, we got spring break coming up here. Uh, yeah, yeah. Are people going to be um, – obviously prices are low, but where do they go as the driving season picks up? 
Well, historically, they're going to increase, and it's going to be a factor of, of, of two variables here. Of course, one is the increased demand, uh, more cars on the road, uh, and so the constraints that's going to be putting on manufacturing gasoline and getting gasoline to where it needs to be, of course, at your local pump, but also it's going to be the factor mm-hmm. of the summer-grade gasoline. So right now, we blend for gasoline, or in the winter, you're going to blend for right. gasoline that has a different vapor pressure. But once we get into the summer, you're going to have to you lower your vapor pressure for environmental reasons. So, of course, to blend for lower vapor pressure, when the 20 or so petrochemicals that go into making a gallon of gasoline is right. much harder. So you'll, you'll probably get like a 30, 40 cent increase at the pump. But given where prices are right now, and it's still extremely favorable once we get into the summer. Now, Stephen Shark is known for hyper-detailed reports. We protect the copyright of all our guests. We're not going to send you the Shork report. Contact Stephen Shork. Stephen, in the back of your report, you have a fabulous eight paragraphs, which is titled, This is a Tragedy. You rip apart the jobs report, and the arch thing that Mike McKee and I hear from our listeners, and maybe what Mr. Trump hears from his listeners, or Mr. Sanders hears from his listeners, which is the quality of job formation. You are stunned at the gift of low energy, Mm -hmm. and we're not creating the jobs we need to create. Discuss. Absolutely. And and when natural gas was at $3, uh, when 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 we... Gasoline, natural gas prices um, crashed. Someone in a discussion I was giving down in Houston asked, well, isn't this the catalyst for a manufacturing renaissance in this country? And I absolutely agreed. And this, this was a, a question from a man from a very large steel company. So certainly the, the comparative advantage that we have over the world with our energy costs and the fact that we are not creating jobs. Guys, by 2018, on the current trend since the Great Recession, there are going to be more people, waiters and bartenders, than there are working in factories and mills in this country. And if we look back at the job creation since the Great Recession, or, or I should say this last week's uh, jobs report, it was heralded, you know, it was great because uh, we had so many jobs, 230,000 added into the private sector. Guys, more than half of those jobs were on industries that pay $500, $550 a week. That is minimum wage jobs that, that we are creating, and that's certainly not any sort of engine of growth, and hence why you're getting the bizarre results that we're seeing in the election when Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders uh, are, uh, you know, are, are getting so much positive consideration. There are obviously a lot of people out there that are concerned. So that is the tragedy. What's going to happen when oil and energy prices either move higher or the rest of the world catches up to these low prices and we lose that advantage. If we can't make hay now when the sun is shining, what happens when the clouds appear? And that is indeed a very scary thought for me. You know, I look, Steve, at, at, at the job dynamics. And, folks, I can't convey the amount of mail we get uh, when the job optimists, I'm going to call them, show up. Part of this is incentivizing investment. If we incentivized energy investment, would it mean a thing? To me, it wouldn't. I mean, the industry's basically in chaos until they sort the new price out, aren't they? Oh, uh, yeah, I know. A- absolutely. So, uh, I mean, they're not well, going to help. 
Uh, and but what's what's going to happen now? Now, from a job standpoint, those jobs aren't coming back. We've lost 150,000 jobs, if not more, in the energy sector, and these are jobs that pay 14, 15, 1600 dollars a week. I mean, these are these are the yeah. best paying jobs out there. So, unfortunately, those jobs will come back, but not nearly to the degree that we've lost it. But in the end. What we're seeing now is this retrenchment, forced retrenchment on the U.S. energy industry. And this is something that I can't imagine that OPEC did not see this happening. This industry, the North American industry, uh, is going to come out of this depression in, in, their, in, their, in their sphere of the world, and they're going to come out of this that much stronger. They're going to come out with, once we get through the M&A activity, once we let these debt-laden EMPs, that is, if the banks ever let them crash, they're going, those assets are going to be had for cents on the dollar. The productivity, the efficiency gains are going to be that much greater. The margins are going to be that much fatter, and hence why I'm doubtful that we'll ever see $70 yeah. oil at any, which was the breaking point of the bear market. I doubt we'll ever get there yeah. in, at any point in the foreseeable future because this industry is going to be that much better. And guys, let's not forget the other reason why OPEC, right. especially, wants low oil prices. The inelasticity, price inelasticity of demand for gasoline is falling because what I, I'm calling it the Elon Musk effect. You have substitutes into this market. So whereas we will get a pop in demand, that demand is not going to be commensurate with other pops of demand we've seen in the past because now I have alternatives. The Tesla, drive down Putnam Avenue in Greenwich. When I lived up in Greenwich 20 years ago. Which is America, let's be honest. I mean. Well, right. But the status car on Greenwich Avenue was what? The Humvee, which got like 700 yards to the gallon. Drive down Greenwich Avenue today, it's the Tesla. So inside of one generation, we've completely turned the demand mm -hmm. uh, uh, economics on its head, and the genie's yeah. out of the bottle. So we're not well. going back. And wait until you see the impact of driverless technology on inelasticities. So OPEC is aware of this. They're, they're fighting a losing battle. They're just trying right. to prolong it a little bit more. One minute for our Canadian listeners. Give us an update on how Canada is faring with $40 Brent crude. It, it, it's it, it's brutal, uh, as bad as it is in uh, the U.S. oil patch, everywhere from North Dakota down through Houston. Uh, you go out through Canada, and Canada, their their biggest problem is they're at the end of the pipe. So the complete dynamics. What's happened in natural gas has decimated the Canadian natural gas market because you've got so much gas being produced in my home state here in Pennsylvania and right, right across the border in eastern Ohio with the Utica shale that right. we've completely changed the epicenter of the Canadian natural gas market because we're exporting and those exports are going to grow into Ontario. So we've completely displaced the western Canadian market at this point. So this is something that Canada is dealing with right now considering that yeah. the largest trading part of the United States doesn't need one of their key exports right okay. now, or not to that normal degree. Steve, we've got to see you again when you're in New York. Great briefing. Stephen Shork, the Shork Report of Pennsylvania. <laughs> Just fabulous. And his his research there um, on the February jobs report about, you know, great jobs report uh, with revisions, a terrific jobs report, but the income makeup is uh, gives one pause, Mike. Yeah, it's interesting. He, he, he wades into that debate. Yeah, yeah, he took a real uh, right turn there. We, we like we like that within all of our guests. John Writing, thank you. Stephen Shork, thank you. Uh, tomorrow, Mario Draghi will be our guest in the 830 hour. This is yes, Bloomberg Surveillance. Yes.